0: Today's episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR manager's salaries ain't cheap. Those salaries can average $70,000 a year. So go to Bambi.com slash gold to schedule a free HR audit. And the podcast is also sponsored by Raycon. Get crisp, powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands. Right now, Raycon is offering you 15% off all their products. And here's all you've got to do to get the deal. Go to buyraycon.com gold. Well, when I recorded my last podcast on Wednesday morning, it was right after we got the release of the much worse than expected June producer price numbers. But I hadn't had a chance to comment on Jerome Powell's congressional testimony that took place later that day. In fact, yesterday he finished up his semiannual report to Congress by also testifying in front of the U.S. Senate. So I am going to spend the majority of today's podcast going over the highlights or really the lowlights of this two-day testimony by Powell where he tried to Convince everybody that everything is great and there's nothing to worry about. And he did it with a straight face, which was not an easy task, considering the amount of BS that he was required to constantly put out in order to put lipstick on this pig of an economy. And not even so much the economy that's the pig, but the monetary policy that Powell himself has been administering. But before I actually talk about the congressional testimony and the absurdity of what we witnessed, let me backtrack a little bit and talk about some other data that came out that really should have been relevant to this testimony. First, it's the data on import and export prices that came out yesterday. So this data was not available during Powell's testimony before the House of Representatives, but it was available prior to the beginning of his testimony before the U.S. Senate. And these numbers did not get mentioned once by any of the senators. But look at how awful these numbers were. The only silver lining in these bad numbers was that somehow they didn't beat the estimates, which was for numbers that would have been even worse. But in any event, the import prices for the month of June rose by a full one percentage point, which was actually slightly less than the 1.2% that had been anticipated. But there was a revision to the prior month where the original report was that prices had increased by 1.1%. Now we've learned that they increased by a staggering 1.4%. Again, That is in a single month. That's import prices. On the export front, prices were up even more. Exports rose by 1.2% for the month versus expectations of a rise of 1.3%. But look at the month over month increase, which really is shocking because we were originally told that prices for the month were up by 2.2% which was a very big number. But instead, that number was revised to a horrific 17.5% increase in one month. Now, I'm really not sure how we ended up with such a big number in one month. It's got to be an all-time record high in a month-over-month increase in export prices. And that means that the year-over-year increase in export prices, is 16.8%. That's an incredible number, except when you compare it to what it was the prior month at 17.4%, I guess because that's more heavily weighted to what happened in May with that 17.5% increase. But still, 16.8% year-over-year gain is an incredible increase in prices in a year. In fact, on the import front, The year-over-year increase there was 11.2%. That was slightly better than the 11.3% that was originally estimated for last month. That got revised up to 11.6%, so we improved a bit from that revision but not very much from what the original number was, but still 11.2% year-over-year increase in import prices. Now, these numbers, as far as I'm concerned, are far more reflective of what's actually happening to consumer prices, to the cost of living, than is the CPI, which is showing year-over-year gain. I think it was 5.4% or something like that. These numbers are going up two to three times as much as the official CPI. And the reason I think that the import-export prices are more accurate and paint a better picture of what people are actually experiencing when they go and buy stuff is because these numbers aren't all manipulated the way the numbers are when they go through the CPI. They're just looking at the price of imports. What did we import? What did we pay? And they're looking at the price of exports. There's no adjustments for quality. There's no adjustments or substitutions or things like that. The basket isn't changed in order to influence the outcome and make sure the number is as low as possible. These are just the numbers, and these numbers aren't lying the way the people who figure the CPI are. So this is really what Americans are experiencing. And again, some people might think, well, at least the export prices are going up faster than the import prices. After all, We're selling the exports, and we want to get a lot of money for those, and so it's better that our imports aren't going up as fast as our exports. And yes, to a degree, that may be true when it comes to our balance of trade, but you have to remember, we import a whole hell of a lot more than we export. So an 11.2% increase in the cost of our imports actually hits us harder than the gain from being able to charge 16.8% more for our exports. But what's more troubling to me, when you see how much our exports are going up, that reflects the cost of producing goods in America that we export. That shows you how much higher the costs are domestically relative to the costs that are being experienced internationally. Inflation in the U.S. is much worse than it is outside the US, that's why the cost of the stuff that we make here is going up so much faster than the stuff that is made abroad and that we're able to import. But the real problem is not that we're having to charge more for the stuff that we export, but we obviously are also charging more for the stuff that we produce that we don't export. Because It's not like we're only producing stuff and exporting it. The stuff that we're producing, it's the same stuff that we export that we consume ourselves. It's just that we don't consume it all ourselves. We export some of it. So if the cost of stuff is soaring based on what we export, then so is the cost of stuff that we don't export. Americans are also paying much higher prices for the things that we produce domestically but don't export. And in fact, my guess is that exporters have not passed along the total extent of their increased costs. We've already seen that when you compare the U.S. producer prices to the U.S. consumer prices, producer prices have risen a lot more than consumer prices because the producers are eating some of these price hikes because they're reluctant to pass them on to their customers. It's likely the same thing is happening with exporters. Our companies that are exporting are absorbing some of the hit from higher prices because they don't want to lose market share. So they're trying to keep their price increases to a minimum, even if that's 16.8%. So it's likely that costs, To produce these goods are rising faster than the 16.8% increase in what we're charging people who buy these goods. So this shows you the amount of inflation that is being experienced in the real world is already far greater than the numbers that are shown in the fantasy world of the CPI, even though those numbers in and of themselves are horrible. These are the worst numbers we've seen since the early 1980s, yet they don't even tell the whole story. The real story is probably an inflation that is already worse than maybe anything we experienced during the 1970s, and we're just getting started. When people talk about this whole thing being transitory, they've actually got the transitory period wrong. What was transitory is not the high inflation that we're experiencing now. What was transitory was all the low inflation we experienced in the past, especially the low inflation that we've enjoyed since the 2008 financial crisis. That's what was transitory. What's happening now is we're transitioning back to the reality. We're actually catching up to all the inflation that we should have been held accountable for back then, only now we're starting to feel the impact. So we are now in a transition from low inflation to high inflation, and it's about to get a lot worse because the transition is just getting started, and we're going to see much higher numbers as the months and years go by. Also, yesterday, and this was after Powell finished his testimony, so these particular numbers wouldn't have come up, but we got the most recent Fed balance sheet. Now, the balance sheet did come up in his testimony, but not yesterday's numbers. But in the most recent week, the Fed's balance sheet skyrocketed by $103.9 billion. It now stands at an all time record high. 8.202 trillion, although it's already higher than that because these numbers are not up to date today, but they're the most recent numbers we have, and it is an all time record high. So, for the Fed to be talking about how inflation is transitory while the Fed continues to throw gasoline on the inflationary fire, on what basis would it have to claim that all of this is transitory? In fact, this week, the U.S. government began sending out checks for the new enhanced earned income child credit. And, you know, it's not even a tax credit for earned income because at this point, anybody qualifies for this credit, even if you don't have any income to credit it against. Because if you don't have any income, the IRS is just going to cut you a check. And these are the most generous benefits that we've ever seen. Every family that has income below a certain number. If you're an individual, right, you're a head of household and you're not married, that cutoff is 75000 Now, you're not cut off completely at 75000 That's where the value of the benefits begin to phase out. Eventually, you get cut off completely once your income hits a certain amount, but you can earn up to 75000 to get the full credit. If you're married, then it's doubled. So a couple can earn up to $150,000 and still not see any reduction in the credit, which pretty much is most couples. I mean, very few American couples make more than $150,000 a year. In fact, medium income for an individual is about $35,000. So most couples don't even make the $75,000 at which the benefits would be phased out for an individual. And these benefits are $3,600 per child that is under six. So that's zero to five. You get $3,600 And for each child that's 6 to 17, you get $3,000 per year. Now, I think they break it down. I'm not sure if they give it to you every month or how it works, but those are the yearly numbers. Think about how big that is. And again, anybody could get it, even if you don't have any income. So you could be on welfare and all sorts of other programs and still qualify for these additional tax-free benefits, right? Because you don't pay any taxes on this money, right? It's all tax-free. So let's say, you know, you got a big family. Let's say you have six kids in this big family. And, you know, a lot of working Americans can't afford to have six kids, but a lot of Americans that don't work and that live off of welfare, well, they got six kids. Well, let's say you do. If two of those kids are below six, and then you have four that are between six and 17, you're going to get $19,200 per year from the US government. That's $1,600 a month in tax-free money, in addition to whatever other benefits that you're already getting. And of course, assuming you're not on welfare, let's say you are working and you were paying taxes. Well, these credits may be big enough to completely eradicate your entire income tax bill, or in fact, may result in you getting a net check from the US government, where even though you're working, you're not actually paying any income taxes, you're getting a check from the government. But this is going to cost the government a lot of money either in the form of tax revenue that they no longer collect or money that they just start sending out as additional government spending. Where is all of this extra money going to come from? All of these American families that have kids are suddenly gonna have a lot more money to spend, but they didn't earn any more money. They didn't add goods and services to the economy. There was no increased production associated with all this extra income. They're just gonna have all this cash and they're gonna go out and spend it. So what is the result of this new child tax credit? It's more inflation. The Fed is gonna print money so that the U.S. government can send it out to families who are gonna spend it on their kids driving up the price of everything that they buy. So the inflation problem that we've experienced in the past that is really bad is about to get much worse because now there's all this additional money that's going to be hitting consumers' pockets that they didn't have when this data was compiled. And of course, this is not the end of all the government handouts. It's still the beginning. We have huge pieces of legislation on deck for the government to spend trillions and trillions of dollars that it has no intention of collecting in taxes, and it is completely relying on the Federal Reserve to print all the money which means the inflation fire that Powell claims is going to go out by itself because it's all transitory is about to get much, much bigger because he's throwing all this gasoline on it, which I suppose is a a good time to now transition to talk about this congressional testimony where Powell is claiming the inflation fire is going to go out by itself while he continues to pour additional quantities of gasoline on it, which are making the fire even bigger. And before I actually get in to what Powell had to say with respect to the testimony, it's clear to me from listening to the questions, those asked by both Democrats and Republicans, how the midterm elections are going to shape out. Because every single Republican, without fail, pointed to inflation and asked their question or began their statement, whatever they were doing, by pointing to how bad inflation is and how it's much, much worse than anybody thought and specifically bringing it home to their constituents about how their constituents are struggling and having to deal with this huge and unprecedented increase in the cost of living. And pretty much every Republican, whether they were representatives or senators to a man and woman blamed all the inflation on Biden and Biden's big spending. Now, of course, they forget it takes two to tango, right? Biden can't spend the money that the Fed doesn't print. If the Federal Reserve acted responsibly and refused to monetize all these deficits, then the deficits wouldn't be there. So to kind of put all the blame on Biden, But excuse the Fed. I mean, everybody, even the Republicans were praising Chair Powell and and thanking him for what a great job he's doing. At the same time, they're condemning Biden for causing all this inflation by having all these big deficits when without the Fed's cooperation, the deficits wouldn't be financeable. They wouldn't exist without the Fed. If the Fed made it clear that it's not going to play this game, that it's not going to dance this tango, well, then Congress wouldn't have had the ability to spend all this money. Even if Biden wanted to, he would have been prevented by the Fed pursuing a sound monetary policy. But because the Fed has not acted as an independent agency interested in Preserving the integrity of our money and pursuing a mandate of price stability because it's basically a puppet of whatever administration happens to be in power and it's not really independent. Well, that's the reason that Biden was able to get away with these deficits. In fact, that's the reason that Trump was able to get away with his deficits, which is the hypocrisy of this whole thing, which maybe bothers me even more because you have all of these Republicans who are criticizing the Biden inflation tax, right? They're calling inflation a tax, which is exactly what it is, but that's exactly what it was when Donald Trump was imposing it. None of these senators or congressmen who are so critical of the Biden inflation tax said a word in opposition to the Trump inflation tax when that's exactly what Trump was doing. In fact, all the Republicans were claiming credit for the big tax cuts under Donald Trump He didn't cut taxes. He just replaced income taxes with inflation taxes. Where was all the criticism back then? Why weren't these Republicans criticizing Trump when he was criticizing the Fed for not printing enough money? He was demanding more money printing, more QE. Donald Trump wanted interest rates to go negative, not just zero. He thought zero was too high. He wanted negative interest rates. He was pounding the drums for more inflation and all these other Republicans were just standing behind him you know, pounding the same drum. Where was the criticism? That is the hypocrisy that I think is the biggest problem that the Republicans are gonna have because it looks ridiculous to blame the Biden deficits for the current inflation and completely excuse the Trump deficits. And of course, while praising Powell at the same time. You know, (laughs) it's amazing to me that these guys are so interested in playing politics and putting all of the blame on Biden. They don't want to put any of the blame on the Federal Reserve. But as far as I'm concerned, it's a pox on both their houses. Both political parties are to blame But I put the majority of the blame on the Fed, right? Just like, again, the Fed is the chaperone and the congressmen and the senators, they're the high school students that are there at the prom. Yes, if the prom gets out of hand... You can blame the students because after all, they're 17, 18-year-old kids and how do you hold them responsible? I hold the chaperone responsible who fell asleep on the job. In fact, not only did the chaperone fall asleep, the chaperone spiked the punch bowl, passed out all sorts of drugs and then left the party knowing that all the kids were unsupervised and had all this drugs and alcohol. So it's the Fed that is the primary villain in this. But the Republicans want to let the fed off the hook because they want to put all the blame on Biden and the Democrats without realizing that when they do that they're also putting blame on themselves and Trump because we ran deficits under Republican administrations and for some reason those deficits weren't a problem. That inflation wasn't a tax but the Biden deficits are a problem and the Biden inflation is a tax. Now I know that this may play we'll see in the midterms, because as I said, it's clear to me that inflation is going to be the primary campaign strategy of the Republicans. And inflation is going to be far higher when voters go to the polls for the midterms in 2022 than it is right now. So it'll be pretty obvious to everybody that inflation isn't transitory. And so maybe the congressional terms of some of these Democrats will be transitory as well if the public decides to throw the bums out based on the pain that they feel at the supermarket and the gas station and places like that. Because if you look at what the Democrats were saying, the Democrats weren't really complaining about inflation. The Democrats we were all agreeing with the Fed that the inflation was transitory. And they refused to acknowledge that any of it was causing any pain. They wanted to continue to talk about how great the economy was doing under President Biden. And obviously, if we have a great economy, we can't acknowledge that we have an inflation problem because that would kind of taint this image of how great the economy is. And they wanted to focus on jobs and why We need to keep on growing the economy the way we're growing it and how wages are really rising. Now, of course, they don't want to accept the fact that it's only nominal wages that are rising. Real wages are actually falling. They're patting themselves on the back for how much wages are rising without acknowledging that it's only nominal wages that are rising. In fact, that's the only reason that wages are rising is because of inflation. It's not because of their great economic policy, but the problem for wage earners is that while their wages are going up, the prices that they pay are going up even faster. And so real wages are actually falling while the Democrats are trying to take credit uh, for nominal wages rising.
2: With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stripe Bank NA members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator
0: When running a business, it's the HR issues that can kill you. You've got wrongful termination lawsuits, discrimination, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries ain't cheap. and average is $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small businesses. Now you can get a dedicated HR manager who will craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from being one of your biggest liabilities to being one of your biggest strengths. In fact, you'll get a dedicated HR manager who's available by phone, email, or real-time chat for anything from onboarding to terminations. They will customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day to day and all for just $99 a month. Best of all, it's a month to month deal. There are no hidden fees and you can cancel anytime. Just go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. A couple of the interesting parts of the prepared remarks, right? This is what Powell said to Congress before the Q and A, the most interesting stuff happens during the Q and A. But I'm going to talk about a couple of things that were in the prepared remarks. One of them has to do with Powell's statements about how great the economy is doing, because he goes on to talk about all of the great things that are happening, and we have this powerful recovery, and you know how we have great GDP growth, and all these jobs are being created, right? We got this great economy, but then. After he tells everybody how great the economy is, he points out that it would be premature, though, at this point, for the Fed to even withdraw any of the monetary supports, right? We can't even taper the size of our asset purchases. So it's not that this great economy still needs stimulus. It still needs every bit as much stimulus as it needed before it was great. I mean, when we were in the depths of the COVID recession, we have to have that much stimulus now. Even though the economy is supposedly so much better, we can't even dare reduce the amount of stimulus. He's not even talking about taking away the stimulus. We just can't even have less stimulus than the stimulus we have now. It's premature to raise interest rates from zero. So we've got this really strong economy, yet interest rates have to stay at zero. I mean, they can't even go to one quarter of one percent. Oh no, no. This really strong economy couldn't possibly handle interest rates as high as you know, 25 basis points. See, that is the contradiction in Powell's statements. On the one hand, we've got this great economy. It's really strong, this huge recovery. Yet on the other hand, we need unprecedented and massive amounts of monetary support. And we can't risk even withdrawing a small portion of those supports because this whole great economy could come collapsing down. You know, and one of the things that he points to is that unemployment is still very high, whatever it is, 5.4%. Well, historically, it's not high at all. I mean, historically, it's on the low end. It's only high if you relate it to the three and a half or wherever it was, which was a 50-year low that we got down to prior to COVID. So all of a sudden, that 50-year low is the new benchmark. I mean, Powell is saying we can't have interest rate hikes. We can't have a reduction in quantitative easing until unemployment gets all the way back down to a 50-year low? I mean, that is an incredible, crazy benchmark. Maybe that really, really low unemployment rate was a fluke. Maybe we're not going to be able to get back down there again. In fact, with the U.S. government paying all these people not to work, I would say, yeah, it's pretty impossible, especially if you're also looking at the labor force participation rate, and you expect more people to participate in the labor force when they've got such a sweetheart deal to stay at home. But I think it also shows that I don't think Powell even believes these government numbers. Remember, Donald Trump was a big critic of the government numbers until he became president, and then he was their greatest cheerleader. But I think maybe Powell knows that that 3.5% unemployment rate was bogus, as is the current 5.4%. None of these numbers mean anything. They're all irrelevant. The real unemployment rate was never as low as, you know, 3.5%, and it's not as low as where it is now. Powell probably knows that the real unemployment rate is well north of 10%, but the problem is nothing that Powell is doing is going to change that. Printing money, creating inflation, is not gonna solve the unemployment problem. It's not like we have people who are unemployed because we don't have enough inflation, that the reason we don't have more people productively employed is because the Fed is not printing enough money, that the Fed doesn't have interest rates low enough. That's nonsense. If you created prosperity by having money printing at artificially low interest rates, we'd be the most prosperous nation in the history of the world right now. If you solve the unemployment problem, with cheap money and inflation and artificially low interest rates, we would have already solved it. There'd be nothing to worry about. Look, the whole thing is a lie. Biden knows it's impossible to raise interest rates, and that's why he's not doing it. Of course, it would be funny if he leveled with Congress, not only told the truth about inflation, but about Congress's role in putting the Fed in this predicament. Because, obviously, you've got all these Republicans that want the Fed to fight inflation. The Fed can't fight inflation without completely destroying the economy. We're going to have to collapse the bubble that was inflated, not just now with Biden, but that Donald Trump helped inflate. And, of course, Barack Obama, but then George Bush before him. Nobody wants to hear the truth. Powell doesn't want to speak the truth. And none of the congressmen or the senators really want to hear the truth. So Powell keeps on lying, and then you've got a bunch of people in Congress that pretend to believe him. That is the absurdity of what we're witnessing here. But the most absurd part about it is when the Fed talks about inflation. So in their prepared remarks, the Fed said that it is aiming for inflation to moderately exceed 2% for some time. And this is laughable. They're aiming for inflation to moderately exceed 2%. They've already missed by a mile. Inflation is way above 2% any way that you want to measure it, right? So they've already failed. I mean, they have a horrible aim because they missed by a mile and were way above 2%. And even Powell himself, before the U.S. Senate, was forced to admit that they're not moderately above 2%, that we're way above 2%. Well, okay, if we're way above 2%, why don't you do anything about it? Now- The Fed did imply in its statement that it would do something about it. Here's what the Fed said. The Fed said, if inflation is materially and consistently above our target, then the Fed would adjust its policy. Well, what the hell does that mean? First of all, they said they want inflation to moderately exceed 2%. What does moderately mean? Well, I think the Fed has already acknowledged that what we've got now is not moderate. So we're already more than moderate. But what does for some time mean? What does materially, how high above 2% do we have to get before it's material? And what does he mean by consistently? How many months, how many years do we have to be moderately or materially above 2% to qualify as consistent before the Fed is going to change policies? And you know what? Not even the Fed knows. Because it has no intention to change policies no matter what happens. And in fact, one of the senators actually asked him to define sub-time, right? I mean, he's like, what do you mean by that? You you said you're going to allow inflation to be above 2% for some time. How long is some time, right? That was the question, right? I thought, great. This is a great question. Let's see how he wiggles out of it. And this is what Powell said. His reply was, it depends, That's it. That's what he said. It depends. That's his answer. That's not an answer. You can't answer a question by saying it depends. It depends on what? You know, I was hoping that the senator would have asked that question. It depends on what? But he didn't. He just accepted that BS non-answer of that depends. And in fact, what really made me laugh is that Powell himself, after he didn't answer the question and said, it depends... He also said, hey, you know, that's a good question. Yes, it is a good question because Pal doesn't know the answer. And if he knew the answer, he couldn't speak it. Maybe he knows there is no answer. And that's why he says it depends. Whether it's for work or play, a lot of us are going to be on the move again this summer. That's why I've teamed up with Raycon and I recommend their wireless earbuds. And now you can get 15% off your entire Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash gold. Whether you're listening to your favorite tunes or one of my podcasts, a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears can make all the difference. You get crisp, powerful sounds at half the price of other premium audio brands. Raycons look great and they feel even better. They come in a range of colors and include customizable tips for a comfortable in-ear fit. And all Raycons are built to go wherever you do with quick and seamless Bluetooth pairing and compact carrying case. In fact, it's so simple to use, even my seven-year-old, who's now eight, can do it. One of the best things about Raycons, in addition to the great sound, is the fact that they've got 24-hour battery life, which means they're the perfect accessory to take out on a trip. If you want to use them while you're outdoors, you don't have to worry about them running out of charge. So listen up. Raycon is offering 15% off all their products to all my listeners. And here's all you've got to do to get this great deal. Just go to buyraycon.com slash gold. There you'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. It's such a good deal. You'll want to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash gold. But there is one, I think, Republican senator who was very concerned about inflation getting out of hand and about the Federal Reserve being too timid and being too slow to react. Because remember, the tradition is to be preemptive, not to wait until the inflation genie is out of the bottle to try to put it back in, but to prevent the genie from getting out of the bottle in the first place. And because it's so difficult to get the genie back in the bottle, it's worth it to gamble to make sure it doesn't get out, right? Even if it's a false alarm, okay, better safe than sorry. That's been the tradition. Well, what Powell has done now is say, no, we don't wanna play it safe. We're just gonna gamble. We're just gonna throw the dice on this. We're basically gonna bet the farm that inflation is transitory because that's really what Powell said because he assured this senator, that even if inflation is not transitory, right, if the Fed is wrong and the inflation fire does not go out all by itself, we can rest assured that the Fed is going to put it out, right? Powell asked that all Americans just have faith in the Federal Reserve. Now, why they would have faith is beyond me, uh, given their track record. But Powell says the American public should have faith that when push comes to shove, the Fed will finally do the right thing, right? Even though we've done the wrong thing up until then, we will do the right thing. If it turns out that inflation is not transitory, we will make it transitory. We will do whatever it takes to bring inflation back down to 2%. Because Powell said, we've got the tools, right? The Fed has the tools to fight inflation. And so we'll be able to bring it back down to 2%. Now, he said that we don't want to use those tools now. Powell said this, we're reluctant to use them now because we don't want to hurt the recovery. But don't worry, we'll use them later. That's what makes absolutely no sense. Because if Powell has the tools but won't use them now when they should be used, preemptively. And in fact, it's too late to preempt inflation. I mean, the horses are way out of the bar door by now. That bridge has been crossed, right? So it it wouldn't be preemptive now. I mean, the inflation genie is already out of the bottle. They're just hoping that the genie goes back in the bottle all by itself, right? That's the point we're at right now. But if the Fed is reluctant to use its tools now because it might jeopardize the recovery, why would it use those tools later? when those tools will do even more damage to the economy. Because the longer the Fed waits to fight inflation, the bigger the fight, because the worse the inflation gets. I mean, maybe you could say that inflation is in its infancy. Well, would you rather fight an infant or wait for the infant to grow up and become a full-grown inflation monster, which is what the Fed is allowing, and then have to fight it? Because if the Fed is reluctant to use its tools now, because those tools might hurt the economy. Think about how much more those tools will hurt the economy in a year or two when inflation is a much bigger problem, and therefore it has to use the tools in a much bigger way, right? It has to raise interest rates much higher if it waits longer to do it. It has to slam on the brakes much harder. And of course, if the Fed waits a couple more years before finally admitting that inflation is transitory and then fighting it, think about how much more debt The U.S. economy would have taken on? How much more money would the U.S. government have borrowed to finance all these programs that we can't afford? How much more money would corporate America have borrowed and levered up its balance sheet to buy back stock? How many more mortgages would people have taken out on overpriced homes? How many more car loans, student loans? How much more debt will Americans run up on their credit cards? And how much bigger will the asset bubbles get? In other words, the longer the Fed waits to fight inflation, the more vulnerable the economy becomes to the fight, the bigger the collateral damage, because now you get the economy more dependent on cheap money, and then you pull the rug out from under it You know, when it's more dependent on it than it was now. So if the Fed won't use its tools now, why would anybody expect it to use its tools in the future? The Fed is saying, trust us. We don't want to use them now because we don't want to hurt the economy. But don't worry. We will use them later, even though it's going to hurt the economy even more, right? That's the BS. Nobody would believe that. I mean, why would the Fed make such a crazy gamble, right? If the Fed really could take out an insurance policy to make sure that inflation was transitory, that's exactly what it would do. The fact that it's not doing anything, the fact that it's seemingly making this all or nothing bet, because remember, if the Fed is wrong and inflation isn't transitory and they're actually being honest and they're going to slam on the brakes and jack interest rates way up and cause a massive collapse in the U.S. economy, unprecedented, worse than the Great Depression, right? far worse than the 08 financial crisis, why would they take that chance? Why not just, okay, we don't think, Uh, We think inflation is transitory, but you know what? Let's just make sure. Because if we're wrong and it's not transitory, the consequences are so horrific that we can't afford to take that chance. So we're just going to err on the side of caution and we're going to start raising rates now. We're going to taper right now just to be safe. The reason they're not saying that is because they realize that that already would cause a massive economic collapse, unprecedented in U.S. history. The reality is we've already lost the bet. The real gamble that the Fed made was in 2008. That was the gamble. They bet the farm back then. We've already lost the farm. We are broke. All the Fed is trying to do at this point is delay the day of reckoning, delay the day that we're foreclosed on and forced to leave the farm. That's it. And the proof of the matter is there is no way any rational Fed would make an all or nothing bet if it didn't have to. If the Fed actually could fight inflation now, while it's not as bad to prevent it from getting worse, it would do it. The fact that it's doing nothing now, the fact that it's lying about it now is proof that the Fed knows that it can't do anything about inflation, which is why nobody should believe the Fed when it says, trust us, We will put out the inflation fire once it's obvious that it's not going to go out on its own. It'll be impossible for the Fed to put out that fire. In fact, we already know exactly what they're going to do. They're going to throw gasoline on that fire, and it's going to get even bigger. Of course, I think people back in the 1970s, early on, maybe they trusted the Fed too. After all, whatever tools the Fed has today to fight inflation, the Fed had those tools in the 1970s as well. And just like Powell is reluctant by his own admission to use those tools now, the Fed was also reluctant to use them back then for the same reason. They didn't want to raid on the parade. They didn't want to take the punch bowl away. They didn't want to risk hurting the economy, even if it was phony. And it took Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan for the Fed to finally bring out those tools. But again, because they waited so long to really use them, interest rates had to go to 20%. Imagine how much higher interest rates are going to have to go this time because they're waiting a lot longer to use the tools. And the problem is going to be much bigger by the time they finally get around to doing it, which is why they won't. One of the other very interesting exchanges, and in fact, there were a couple of exchanges along this line where you had Republicans trying to get Powell to comment on the fact that the big deficits- under Biden, all this money that Biden was spending, that these deficits were making the Fed's job more difficult and were contributing or causing the inflation. And Powell refused to answer the question. I mean, there were some very legitimate questions like, hey, does it make your job more difficult to maintain price stability when we're running these huge deficits, right? Which, of course, yes, it complicates the hell out of the Fed's job, especially if the Fed thinks its job is to monetize any deficits the U.S. government wants to run, which means the U.S. government is calling the shots. If the Fed is basically giving the U.S. government carte blanche, hey, whatever deficits you want to run, you can count on us to finance them. The Fed has no independence whatsoever. So it makes perfect sense to me that the Federal Reserve should be giving advice to Congress, and that advice should be stop running deficits. You want to spend money? Raise taxes or cut spending someplace else. But you can't write this check that you can't cash and expect the Fed to make it good. But what Powell said to each and every Republican who asked him to comment, we can't comment. It's not the Fed's job. I'm not allowed to comment on fiscal policy. I'm only allowed to talk about monetary policy which is ridiculous because monetary policy is tied to fiscal policy when the monetary policy monetizes all the deficits that are the result of fiscal policy. So the idea that it's somehow outside the Fed's mandate and that Powell can't comment on this is absurd. See, he's basically using that as an excuse because he doesn't want to answer the question. Because obviously the answer is yes, of course, if you're going to run these big deficits, we're going to have more inflation so long as I monetize them, which of course I'm going to do. So Powell did not want to validate the concerns that any of the Republicans were expressing. So it hid behind this supposed... Chinese wall that, you know, it can't go beyond and somehow it's going to step in somebody else's lane that, hey, we only deal with monetary policy. So don't ask me to comment on fiscal policy. That's up to you. Well, one of the senators pointed out the hypocrisy of that statement because he read newspaper stories where Powell was specifically urging the U.S. government to pursue more aggressive fiscal stimulus. He was basically demanding, which maybe is too strong a word, but highly advocating that the U.S. Congress, in order to combat the economic downturn, provide more fiscal stimulus. The Fed was begging Congress to provide more fiscal stimulus and assuring Congress that whatever deficits were run, the Fed was there to monetize them. Don't worry about the costs. Don't worry about interest rates going up. We won't let them go up. Whatever money you want to spend, just spend it. We'll print what you need. That's what Powell was saying. So this senator said, "Okay, wait a minute. If you were able to give advice on fiscal policy back then, why can't you do it now? And here's what Powell's answer was. He said, you know, that was a mistake. I never should have done that. In hindsight, it was a mistake but in defense of myself it was emergency so you know we were saying and doing all sorts of things that were unprecedented so only in the context of that emergency i overstepped my bounds i really shouldn't have said that but you know given the circumstances i guess you can understand it because we were all doing things and saying things that we don't normally do but you know now that the situation is somewhat normalized i am not going to repeat that mistake So I made the mistake in the past. I'm not going to make it again. And again, that was his out. But this was all a lie. See, the reason he was willing to give Congress advice in the past was because he was giving them the advice that they wanted to hear, which was spend more money, stimulate the economy, right? Everybody wanted to do that. So he's willing to give Congress advice that everybody is going to like. But he doesn't want to deliver the bad news. He doesn't want to tell... Congress that they got to stop spending, right? He doesn't want to rain on that parade, right? Take away that punch ball, which is exactly what he's supposed to do. So now, right, now he wants to keep quiet and hide behind this phony wall that, oh, I can't talk about fiscal policy when he knows he has and he can. He just knows that they're not going to like the answer, even if the Republicans may like the answer somewhat, because the Republicans are opposed to all these deficits that are being generated by Biden, even though they were in favor of them under Trump. Again, forget about the hypocrisy of that. The Republicans want Powell to admit that these deficits are causing inflation because the Fed is choosing to monetize them and he refuses to admit that. So instead he pretends that he can't comment. But when he does that again, that is just more reason not to believe a word that he says because everything he says is a lie. And there's so many other examples of him lying, like the Republicans have asked him to admit that part of the reason that we still have so many people not working, part of the reason that we have you know so many people not participating in the labor market is because of these generous unemployment benefits, the fact that the U.S. government is paying people not to work. And the Republicans are asking Powell to comment on this and say, hey, could this be a problem. Is paying people not to work a reason that people are not working and getting paid? And he refuses to say yes. The fact that Powell refuses to admit something so obvious by trying to claim, well, he doesn't really know that we don't have enough evidence. You don't need any evidence. You just need common sense. Obviously, if you pay people not to work, they won't work. The fact that he can't admit it and wants to pretend that we don't have enough evidence and the jury is still out He's lying, he is a politician, nothing he says is believable, all he's trying to do is defend the indefensible, he's trying to kick the can down the road to delay the inevitable as long as he can.
2: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify?
0: There was a question about the dollar's reserve currency status. Powell, of course, commented that he wasn't worried at all about the dollar ever losing its reserve currency status. So, hey, I'm going to you know, keep on uh, printing money. It doesn't matter about this inflation. And the reason that he's so sanguine about the dollar is that he said that there's nothing that can possibly replace it. In fact, he said that all of the things that a nation needs in order to issue the reserve currency, the U.S. has them. And apparently no other country has them. We are unique in possessing all the things that you need to have the reserve currency. What things is Powell talking about? I mean, massive budget deficits, massive trade deficits, a huge bubble economy. I mean, what are the things that we have that are so special that we alone are capable of issuing the world's reserve currency? The fact of the matter is the characteristics that America enjoyed that enabled it to have the reserve currency, it no longer has. America was the world's biggest creditor nation. America had the biggest trade surpluses. We were the wealthiest creditor nation. We are nothing like the country that the world bestowed this privilege on. We are the mirror image of what we used to be. So we are probably the least qualified to have reserve currency status. Not that any other country is, but certainly we're not. So the world does not need the U.S. dollar to be the reserve. What the world needs to do is go back on the gold standard. And gold has all the characteristics that you need for a reserve. The U.S. has none. I thought another interesting comment of Powell's had to do with inflation expectations, which he apparently thinks are the most important factor in determining inflation. He basically said that consumers get the inflation that they expect. So if they expect 2%, they'll get 2%. You know, very rarely do you necessarily get what you expect. I think oftentimes consumers are going to be shocked when reality is very different than what they expect. You know, a lot of people do things with one expectation and they're shocked when things don't turn out the way they expect. Inflation is not about expectations. It's about the Fed monetary policy. And if consumers don't expect a lot of inflation right now, it's because they're wrong. And most consumers who do expect inflation are still wrong because they don't expect enough. All this talk about expectations and about how people behave in an environment where they expect more inflation is all part of the government's attempt to shift the blame from inflation from itself to the people by claiming the people are causing inflation by expecting it. Because the people expect inflation, they raise wages. Because workers expect inflation, they demand higher prices. All of this is tried to insulate government from the blame. But the only reason people expect inflation is because the government is creating it. They are reacting to the inflation the government creates. The Federal Reserve creates the inflation and it does it in concert with the U.S. government. The U.S. government spends the money, the Fed prints it, and that's why prices go up. And that's the only reason that all prices are going up. Absent that, capitalism would be bringing prices down. Also, you know, when talking about these unemployment benefits and these extended unemployment benefits, Powell also repeated a Democratic talking point, which is a bunch of nonsense, that he thinks that these extended unemployment benefits are actually helping the economy because it means that people can hold out for a better job than they would ordinarily do. So in other words, they don't have to just take any job that comes around because the unemployment benefits are so high, they can rate for the perfect job. They can stay collecting unemployment longer until they get the ideal job. And somehow that's supposed to be better for the economy because it means people end up In better jobs than they would otherwise take again pure bs because you don't have to stay in the job that you settle for when you just take a job any job because you need to put food on the table that doesn't mean you stop looking for a better job right if you're an engineer but you need to pay the bills so you accept a job at McDonald's, you're not going to stay at McDonald's forever. You're going to keep looking for an engineering job while you're working at McDonald's. To say that whatever job you settle for, you're stuck for for the rest of your life, it's nonsense. And by the way, I bet an engineer who gets off his ass and gets a job at McDonald's, that guy is more likely to get a job as an engineer than the guy that stays at home on unemployment waiting for that plum engineering job to come around Because I think when you're out in the world working, you're more likely to get hired. You're more likely to learn about employment opportunities that exist. And you know what? If I was running a company and I got a couple of resumes in... From an engineer who was unemployed and one who was working at McDonald's, the guy at McDonald's is the one I want to hire. That's a go-getter. That's a guy that's going to do the work. He's not going to be manby-pamby. He's not going to complain about having to work long hours. If that guy is willing to work at McDonald's because that's what he has to do, that's my guy. That's who I want to hire to work for me. And I'm sure a lot of other bosses would really respect the fact that people will take whatever work they can get rather than sit on the dole. But in his admission that these unemployment benefits are causing people to hold out and stay unemployed while they're waiting for this perfect dream job to come along, he's actually admitting that these benefits are part of the problem, which is something he refused to admit when he was directly asked to speak about it. Also, one of the other comments that Powell made to try to highlight the fact that inflation is uh, transitory and simply a function of the economy reopening, is he said that the price increases only relate to a handful of items, which is not true. This is widespread. This is across the board. There are a lot of prices that are going up. It's more than just a handful. But again, all prices are not going up. But apparently, according to Powell, Inflation is not a problem until the price of everything is going up. No, when the price of everything is going up, it is an enormous problem. I mean, normally when you have inflation, at least defined by increasing prices, it's the total aggregate price level of all goods and services. So within that, you're always gonna have some prices that are going down while other prices are going up. In fact, as the price of some goods go up and you buy those goods, and you don't buy other goods, the price of those other goods that you're not buying might come down. Inflation is just looking at the aggregate of all of these prices combined. So even if you have three or 4% inflation underneath the surface, yes, you're gonna have some goods prices that might be going up by 8%. Some might be going down by 2%. It's the average. But what Powell is saying is he's not concerned about the average unless each and every component within the average is also going up I mean, by the time consumers have no relief that the price of every single product they buy is going up, nothing is going down, nothing is staying the same. Imagine how high prices would be when that criteria is met. And then the Fed says, "Okay, I guess we've got an inflation problem. Now we're going to solve it. Yeah, by then it's impossible to solve it. Also, on a similar note, when he was talking about transitory, Powell said that One of the reasons he doesn't want to take action now and fight the inflation is that if it's transitory, then there's no reason to fight it. And he said, if we just have a increase in the price level, like a readjustment higher in prices, but then price increases stabilize. He didn't throw out any particular examples, right? But I'm just going to make one up to really illustrate the absurdity of what Powell was telling Congress. But basically what he was saying is, look, let's say we have a year where prices go up 10% or maybe 20%, right? But the following year, they only go up 2%. And then the year after that, they only go up 2%. In other words, we don't really have an inflation problem if we go back to to 2% a year, we just have a one year adjustment where prices go way up during that year, but then they don't keep going up by the same amount each and every year. So in other words, if that happens, if we just have a one or two year period where prices spike, maybe 20 or 30%, but then thereafter, they simply return to 2% per year on their own, well, then that was all transitory and the Fed was right. Except it's not right because what most people think the Fed means by transitory is the price increases that they're seeing now are going to go away, that the prices are going to fall back down to where they used to be. That's what they think when they hear transitory. Not that we're just going to have this huge increase in prices and that's going to be permanent But since after this huge permanent increase in prices, we're just going to go back to our same 2% a year, then it's transitory and there's nothing to worry about. How about worrying about that huge increase in the cost of living that you're going to have to live with forever? And in fact, after this huge increase, which doesn't count because now it's transitory, the prices are still going to go up 2% a year. Another lie that Powell told relates to the interest cost that the U.S. government has in servicing its now close to $30 trillion national debt. One of the senators or congressmen, I forget who, asked Powell if the Fed was going to consider the impact on the U.S. government's budget of its rate hikes, meaning is the Fed concerned or will the Fed think about how much extra it's going to cost the U.S. government in interest payments to pay its bills when it comes time to raise rates. And Powell's answer, well, the only answer he could give, which of course was a lie, was to say, of course not. The Fed will not consider at all the impact that raising interest rates has on the U.S. government, which we know is a lie. But it's just that the Fed can't tell the truth, because if the Fed told the truth, you might have a collapse in the bond market or a collapse in the dollar if the Fed actually admits what everybody should have already figured out. So instead, Powell has to pretend that those costs are irrelevant to Fed monetary policy, except in fact, they're the only thing that is relevant. That's the reason the Fed isn't already raising interest rates, because it knows how badly that would hurt the US government because of all the debt that it has and how much it would cost to service that debt. In fact, not only is the Fed considering the impact of rising interest rates on the US government, he's considering the impact on corporations on households, on everybody in America that, thanks to the Fed, is now drowning up to their eyeballs in debt. The reason we all have so much debt is because the Fed has kept interest rates so low for so long. And the reason the Fed can't raise rates is because we now all have too much debt, thanks to its bad policy. So rather than admitting that its policy was bad, it just continues to compound those mistakes so that we don't have to deal with the consequences. That's why Powell said the Fed is reluctant to use its tools because of all the debt we have, because it didn't use its tools in the past, which is why it's never going to use those tools in the future. A couple more points, though, that I do want to get into from the congressional testimony. Maxine Waters, right, who chairs the committee for the House, she basically talked about affordable housing, and her solution to the problem of the lack of affordable housing is that she wants the U.S. government to spend $600 billion dollars to create affordable housing. Well, where is the government gonna get the $600 billion? Well, the Fed's gonna print it. Well, if the Fed has to print another $600 billion just so the government can build affordable houses, what is that gonna to do to the cost of houses? It's gonna drive them even higher because all of that is inflation. And of course, the government doesn't create affordable houses. The houses that the government creates are very expensive. Anything the government produces is expensive. The irony of Maxine Waters wanting the U.S. government to create affordable housing is it's because of the policies that she promotes that housing is so unaffordable in the first place. You have all sorts of government regulations that make it more expensive to build houses, permitting and other regulations and zoning uh, that increase the cost of housing. Some of these are on the local level. But of course, look at the moratorium that the U.S. government imposed during COVID where people can't get evicted and people aren't paying their rents, that makes it a lot riskier. Why would anybody want to develop affordable housing when you run the risk that none of your tenants are going to pay their rent because the U.S. government says they don't have to and you can't evict them? And of course, you already have local rent control that makes building affordable housing a very risky thing to do. But of course, the artificially low interest rates that the Fed has, government guaranteed mortgages, all of these things, are artificially increasing the cost of housing, which is why houses are so unaffordable in the first place. So the irony of the U.S. government claiming that it's going to solve the problem of a lack of affordable housing with more government is laughable. If you want more affordable housing, get the government out of the housing market, and of course, let's have the Federal Reserve stop creating inflation, stop artificially manipulating interest rates, let housing prices come down so that they become more affordable instead of pursuing a policy which is deliberately designed to prop housing prices up. In fact, another congressman or senator, this is a senator, had an even nuttier idea when it comes to housing. This guy was talking about the fact that he thinks that the appraisers are discriminating Against African American home buyers or homeowners. And he has some kind of cockamamie idea that I think they're going to put into legislation that would somehow force appraisers to overappraise the value of homes in black neighborhoods. Because apparently these homes are being deliberately underappraised by a bunch of racist appraisers and so we have to force these racist appraisers to put higher values on these homes, which of course is pure nonsense. Is it true that homes in black neighborhoods may in fact appraise lower than similar homes in white neighborhoods? Sure, that's probably true, but it's got nothing to do with racism, appraisals are predominantly based on Comparable sales, meaning you look at similar homes in the same neighborhood and you see what those homes have sold for, and then you kind of take an average and then you try to make some adjustments based on some slight changes and come up with an appraisal, right? And so, if homes in black neighborhoods are just selling for less than similar homes in white neighborhoods, the fact that the appraisals reflect this has nothing to do with racism. It just has to do with reality. These are what the homes are selling for. This is the appraisal. I mean, banks want to make loans. I mean, they're not going to want to deliberately undervalue collateral to the extent that they don't make a loan that they may have made had they had an honest appraisal. No, they supposedly want an honest appraisal. So they have an idea about how much money they could lend against a particular house because they want to know is the loan going to default? And if it does, you know, what kind of collateral do I have to get my money back? Now, if this law actually comes into effect that forces appraisers when they're appraising homes in black neighborhoods to ignore all the comps in those neighborhoods and just artificially over-appraise the value. I mean, what kind of problems is this going to solve? I mean, to the extent that they force the banks to believe these appraisals and loan out more money than they should because they don't really have the collateral, it's going to lead to bigger losses for the banks. In fact, it's going to make the banks less reluctant to lend into those neighborhoods when they know that the appraisals are all BS. But meanwhile, how does over-appraising a house help a black potential homeowner who wants to buy, he ends up overpaying. Maybe if he had an honest appraisal, he'd get a lower price, but now there's a BS appraisal and he's got to pay more than the house is worth. He's got to take on an even bigger mortgage. Now he's got a bigger mortgage payment. What about his property taxes? Now maybe he has higher property taxes because his house has been over appraised. Maybe his insurance policies are more expensive because in theory now he's insuring a more valuable house. All of this stuff is going to backfire, but all of this is political grandstanding. These politicians want to pretend, right, that these problems are the result of racism and discrimination, and somehow the government is going to cure these problems with another program. All the government's going to do is make these problems worse. You know, finally, there were some comments about Bitcoin. On Tuesday, it was one of the House members had asked a question about whether or not the Fed was going to come out with a digital dollar. And one of the reasons that he said that that might be a good idea was that if we had an official digital currency from the US government, FedCoin, let's say, that that would make digital currencies obsolete, that we wouldn't need stable coins, we wouldn't need any cryptocurrencies, we wouldn't need Bitcoin if we only had Fed coin. Right? which obviously infuriated a lot of people in the Bitcoin community, or maybe not infuriated them, but just reinforced the idea that the Fed just doesn't get it. Because according to that statement, Powell thinks that the only reason there's any demand for these cryptocurrencies or stablecoins is because people just want to deal with a digital coin for convenience. And that if the U.S. government provided one, everybody would use that. But because the U.S. government doesn't provide one, well, they're forced to settle with these less than ideal alternatives. He's completely missing the point that a lot of people want to own a cryptocurrency, not a stable coin, but a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, because they have no confidence in the Federal Reserve, because the Federal Reserve is printing too much money and creating too much inflation. Yet the supply of Bitcoin is capped at 21 million million. So if the Federal Reserve started issuing digital currency, digital dollars, it would be issuing them on the same terms that it's now issuing the paper ones. It would be inflating the money supply. There would be no limit to how many digital dollars the Fed would create. So you'd have the same problem where your purchasing power would decline over time. And so in that respect, a digital dollar in no way competes with Bitcoin or any of the other cryptocurrencies. Now, it does compete with the stable coins. And I would agree, if there was a digital dollar, that might mean that there was no need for these stable coins to the extent that you could use the digital dollar with the same lack of regulation that you can use a lot of these other stable coins, which may not be the case. But apparently, I think one of the senators actually wanted this clarification. I forget which senator it was. I think it was a woman who might have been. In favor of Bitcoin, because she specifically called out Powell on those comments and asked him to differentiate between stable coins, which are used as a medium of exchange and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which are not used as a medium of exchange, which are assets like gold. And she pointed out that people aren't buying Bitcoin to use it as a medium of exchange. They're buying it as a store of value. They're buying it as an alternative to gold. And therefore, FedCoin would not compete with Bitcoin. To which Powell actually agreed and said, yes, you're right in that respect. But he also made an interesting point. He said it's not that Bitcoin didn't set out to be a medium of exchange. It did. A lot of these currencies want to be a medium of exchange. They just fail as being a medium of exchange. And because they failed at being a medium of exchange, which was their primary mission, they're falling back on this secondary function of being a store of value. But the reality is they fail at that one too. And in fact, if they can't succeed at a medium of exchange, when being a medium of exchange is the only conceivable value that they have, then it's impossible to succeed on the other, which is being a store of value because they have no value that they can store.